Thank you. <laughs> wow, what a morning so far, right? I mean, let's, let's just thank this team for all the work they did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We are so glad you're here. We know we have about 40 people downstairs. We had the same at the earlier service, and so welcome to them. Maybe they have a little more space, uh, but we are just glad to have you all here. Let's pray together as we prepare to hear from God's Word. Lord, you are stronger. You are stronger. Sin is broken. And we appreciate so much the power that you have. But not just your power, Jesus, that you are real and you are alive. And so you're in this room today. And so we can probably, no doubt, we can sense the people around us. But somehow, mysteriously, you are around us. You are here. You are right by us. And you can speak to us. You can connect with us. You can meet that broken-hearted person. You can meet that person who came in feeling like they didn't have hope. I know this week I sat out in that parking lot just facing the building and I got that picture you gave me of all these people who would be coming in looking for hope, God. And now they're here and I believe you're going to give them hope. You say, I want to give you a hope and a purpose. So God, do great things this morning. You already have, but now cement it as we listen to what you have to say to us in your word. And all God's people said... Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, let me just say something that's kind of obvious. Um, more people come to church on Easter than a normal weekend. <laughs> yeah. You should come back next week and make this normal. It'd be great. <laughs> We'd love it. Um, about twice the normal crowd comes on Easter, about twice. And then on Christmas Eve, we get about three times as many people. So it's just not normal. Christmas and Easter are different. Um, I read an interesting article in Vox.com about those two holidays, Christmas and Easter. And in it, Tara Burton, who wrote the article, quoted one person who said something to the effect of, aren't you tired of all the Easter TV specials and all the Easter music in all the stores and all the parties you have to get ready for associated with the Easter holiday? No. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, there actually, I did do a little research just last thing this morning. Um, you know, we all know that there is a a Christmas special for Charlie Brown on Christmas. What's that one called? Charlie Brown Christmas Special. I knew there was a great imaginative name to it. And then there's a Halloween one, which is the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown. Did you know there was also an Easter one? Can anybody name it? Okay, someone could name it. It's called, it was called, it's the Easter Beagle Charlie Brown. They were digging deep. Charles Schultz was digging deep. And it only aired until uh, the year 2000, the last 19 years, they said, enough of that. So, um, but what I want to talk about is that Christmas actually got secularized a lot more than Easter. And it's actually interesting to see how that happened. Up until about the 1800s in America, both holidays had kind of a very similar footprint in American culture. But Christmas in particular was known as somewhat of a time of kind of wild, drunken revelry. Now, you might think, uh, you know, what's the big deal? But I mean, think spring break in Fort Lauderdale kind of revelry, right? You know, real wild behavior. Cotton Mather, who was uh, one of the most notable of the New England preachers, lamented, and I quote him, how the feast of Christ's nativity is spent in reveling, dicing, carding, masking, and in all licentious liberty by mad mirth, by long eating, by hard drinking, by lewd gaming, by rude reveling. So he was saying, you know, it was a pretty wild time back in New England in those days. Historian Stephen uh, Nissenbaum wrote this in the Battle for Christmas. He said, Christmas was a season of misrule, 
a time when ordinary behavioral restraints could be violated with impunity. They even had a person at the holiday called the Lord of Misrule. And that person would go, uh, you know, to parties um, of the kind of the elite and uh, lead them in the kind of the wildness of it. Sounds a lot like what we used to call my fraternity, the social chairman. I actually served that role in my pre-Christ days, and uh, I think I was pretty good, the Lord of Misrule. So in the early 1800s, some Christians and literary figures decided it was time to clean up Christmas's act. It didn't need to be this kind of wild time. And so in 1822, Washington Irving penned what were called the Bracebridge Hall novels. Have you ever heard of those? Anybody? No? Okay, so it was a kind of 19th century Downton Abbey. And in those novels, uh, Irving referred to what he called ancient practices of Christmas that he was making up right there. So, you know, it kind of got into the culture that these things had been around for a while, even though they were being created. And then around the same time, in 1822, a poet named Clement Moore wrote a very famous Christmas poem. Anybody want to guess what it was? "'Twas the night before Christmas." That was 1822. And then in 1843, a novelist in England penned what would probably be the most famous and iconic of all the Christmas stories. And what was his name? Charles Dickens and a Christmas Carol. So you can see the early 1800s were a time of really reshaping of Christmas. Here is uh, what it said in this article. Nissenbaum goes into detail about the cultural creation of Christmas as a bourgeois, civilized, traditional holiday in the English-speaking world. Christmas, Nissenbaum argues, came to be identified with the preservation and celebration of childhood. Interesting, right? Childhood itself, it was changing at that time. Childhood itself was, of course, a relatively new concept. We wouldn't think of that. One linked to the rise of a growing, prosperous middle class in an increasingly industrialized society in which child labor was, at least for the bourgeois, no longer a necessity. So instead of children being workers, they began to have more recreational time. And now you might say, so what? Did you get your holidays wrong here, Mark? This is Easter. What does all this have to do with Easter? Well, what happened to Christmas to secularize? It didn't happen to Easter. Christmas lent itself to secularization, the idea of family, the celebration of childhood tied to the picture of the nativity family just kind of worked. And I like how Burton put it in the Vox article. Here's what she said. The message of Easter, that of an adult man who was horribly killed only to rise from the dead, is much harder to secularize. <laughs> hey, children, let's gather around the empty tomb. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work as well, you know? Celebrating Easter demands celebrating something so miraculous that it cannot be reduced, as Christmas can, to a heartwarming story about motherhood. Its supernatural elements are on display front and center. It is a story about death and resurrection. And then she concludes with these thoughts, and she begins by quoting a gentleman named Matthew Gambino, who wrote in CatholicPhilly.com this, That paradox is why I love Easter far more than Christmas. That movable springtime feast celebrates not the beginning of the God-man's life, but the conquering of his life, uh, conquering of his suffering and ours. Easter marks the transcendence of death, the road leading beyond this life into eternity with the Father. And then Burton concludes, but as the debate over the meaning of Christmas rages on, it's nice to have one holiday at least where the meaning is clear. I was sitting with a new friend a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about his journey to faith and those around him who are not believing people. And he was saying they were agnostics, but may, you know, they call themselves atheists, but maybe they were agnostics. Uh, to be an atheist, you have to uh, kind of presume to be able to prove a negative, right? So that's very hard to prove a negative. Um, at least you have to have some certainty about that. 
that there is no God. God. It's far easier to say, I can't be sure there's a God, or I don't shape my life around belief in God, but I can't be certain that there's no such being. I always think that the question for the true atheist is, well, how much possible knowledge, how much of all the knowledge that's in the world do you think you have? Would you have a half of a percent, you know, an eighteenth of a percent? Maybe you'd be so bold as to say you have one percent of the knowledge that is out there in the universe. Well, isn't it possible that God's in the other ninety-nine and a half percent? I may be wrong, but I find agnosticism a lot easier to land on probably than atheism. And if I was very honest with you today, though this isn't always true, I find that many atheists have been hurt in their past and they feel like they've been hurt by God and they are angry at him. And I get that. But this friend, in talking about those in his family who don't believe around him, said something like this. I just don't see myself living without hope. I think it would be hard to live not believing that there is any reward after this life. And Easter is clearly a holiday that celebrates something enormously hopeful, that death is not the end for us, as we've been singing already this morning. Now, for purposes of illustration, let's talk chemistry for just a few moments. I'm going to talk about open and closed universes. So let's first of all talk about this idea in chemistry of open and closed systems. So if I were to show you a pot like this, this is what's called an open system. And I'm sure the scientists in here are going to correct me. I think I might get this right. An open system is where energy and matter are exchanged. Now, if you go back to the picture, the energy, if you go back to the picture, the energy would be what? Heat. And the uh, matter would be what? Steam, yes. Water in the form of steam. So that's an open system, a pot with no lid on it. If you go to the next picture, that's a pot with a lid on it. That's called a closed system, right? Because now the steam is not allowed to escape there. But heat can still get out, and so this is a closed system where energy, the heating of the area around it, but not matter, the steam, are exchanged. Now, there's a third kind of system called an isolated system. For this, I gave you a diagram. I could have given you a picture of a thermos, but a thermos is an example of an isolated system where, don't go to the next slide, where neither matter nor energy are exchanged, and that's why if you put hot coffee in it, it stays hot you know, sometimes for several hours, or a cold iced tea, it it stays cold because there's no exchange of either matter or energy, and that's because of the insulating, um, you know, the vacuum around it and so on. And so if you go to the next slide, you'll see that an isolated system is one where neither energy nor matter, yeah, I'm sorry, isolated, neither energy nor matter are exchanged. Now, theologians and cosmologists use these same terms. They could probably be using isolated, but they use open universe and closed universe. And when they talk about an open universe, they're saying it's a universe in which God exists outside of it and can act in it and on it, and he has a freedom to move on that world. Now, a closed universe would be one like Carl Sagan talked about, where he'd say, the universe as you see it is everything that was, is, or will ever be. That's a closed, or I might say isolated, universe. So to me, the first question we all have to answer is this. If the universe is closed, then life is purely purely the result of accidental forces in a closed universe. And therefore, life is without meaning or purpose since it is strictly the result of accident. And obviously, in that kind of a system, death mercilessly puts a period on the end of our lives. There's no way around that. In short, there is no hope for life beyond the grave. Zero hope. No hope. In doing my research for this message, I came across uh, an interview. There was a series of interviews in the New York Times with philosophers talking about the existence of God. And there's a very uh, well-known Christian philosopher named um, Alvin Plantinga. He was out, I believe, at college, uh, uh, Calvin College um, 
some years ago, but he's retired now. And he was uh, talking about, asked the question about suffering in the world because he agreed that the toughest question is if there's a good God, why is there suffering in the world? And I think most people agree that's the thing that's the hardest. And uh, so here's what he wrote about what is called the problem of pain. I th think you might find it compelling. I did. He said this. He wrote this. I suppose you're thinking is that it is suffering and sin that makes this world less than perfect. But then your question makes sense only if the best possible worlds contain no sin or suffering. And is that true? Maybe the best worlds contain, I don't know, free creatures, some of whom sometimes do what is wrong. Indeed, maybe the best worlds contain a scenario very like the Christian story. Think about it, he wrote. The first being of the universe, perfect in goodness, power and knowledge, creates free creatures. These free creatures turn their backs to him, rebel against him, and get involved in sin and evil. Rather than treat them as some ancient potentate might, e.g. having them boiled in oil, God responds by sending his son into the world to suffer and die so that human beings might once more be in a right relationship to God. God himself undergoes the enormous suffering involved in seeing his son mocked, ridiculed, beaten, and crucified, and all this for the sake of sinful creatures. Then he concludes, I'd say a world in which this story is true would be a truly magnificent world. It would be so good that no world could be appreciably better, but then the best worlds contain sin and suffering. Interesting argument, right? So if there's a God... We live in an open universe, and if there's a God outside of what we see, a divine being who acts in and on the world, then all kinds of things are possible. It's possible that he created the world from nothing, ex nihilo, as theologians say. It's possible that such a divine being can interrupt the course of nature and do miracles. He could inspire people to communicate his truth through letters and books and history and poetry. He could do that. And, you know, when you think about it, what is at the very center of the human cell that includes knowledge? What is that? Go ahead, scientists. DNA, DNA exactly. DNA, which is full of information, you know, of what we're going to be like. Are you going to be blonde, short, tall? You know, what are you going to have? You know, what's your body type? And all those things. And some might say, well, you know, this is such a supernatural idea, and the idea of DNA is so natural. But to God, he's saying, my whole purpose is to communicate myself, both in creating people who are like me in my image and then in communicating to them how they can know me again. So it's all kind of natural to God. If there's a God, could he not come and visit the world he made? Wouldn't, he be, wouldn't that be possible for him? And if he did visit us, wouldn't you think it normal that he might perform miracles? That he might walk on water, raise the dead, and restore sight to the blind? That he'd turn water into wine and fish into, you know, multiply fish and loaves and then finally raise people from the dead. Wouldn't that make sense if God visited us? I agree, Patrick. <laughs> if God visited us and we murdered him for breaking the protocols of religious order, don't you think it might be impossible to keep that guy in the grave? And that's the story of Easter, right? And what if this being's goal all along was to communicate himself to you so that you could live forever? What if you were meant to live forever? We were all meant to live together but forever. But something happened in the world. And he said, I'm going to fix that so you can all live forever with me in eternity the way you were made to live. What if that is the case? And of course, that's the story of Easter. When we look at Easter, I'm going to argue that we look at it from a little bit of a narrow perspective. We look at it as a focus on Jesus. And you might say, well, yeah, I think it's a kind of a focus on Jesus. 
but it's a little bit too small because Easter's about Jesus, but it's about more than Jesus. It's about the plan of God the Father in eternity to do what's necessary to throw open the doors of heaven to all of us. That's what I want you to see today, that Easter is the culmination of an eternal plan conceived by an infinitely smart, create, loving God to make death a comma in your life and not a period. That's what Easter is all about, friend. The Father plans it, the Son executes the plan, and the Spirit awakens your heart to see that it's for you. And he may do that with you today. I pray that he will. I'm praying that he will. Now let's take a look at some passages from the Bible that tell us this from two biblical authors, First Peter and then Paul. We're going to be in First Peter 1 here. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen, and that word chosen might be a little bit more literally translated foreknown because it's the Greek word pro, prior, or for, agnosmenoi, and that's the word gnosis, like when I used the word earlier, agnostic, A being negation, A, gnosis, don't know, I don't know if there's a God. So he was pro-agnosmenoi, which means foreknown, so let me just go back. He was chosen or foreknown before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So, what does this passage tell us? that there is a God who's a judge and we should fear him. And I want to minimize that, but it's that idea of ultimate respect and awe of God. That we were redeemed, meaning we were bought back from a lost state. That the purchase price was the life of the Son of God. That's what the blood's all about. That he paid his life to buy your freedom from sin and its consequences. And that this plan was known before you ever even came into being. And it was made known for your sake at the time that the gospel came out, for your benefit. And now you can believe in God, you can trust in Jesus and what he did for you when Jesus rose from the dead, so you can live with hope, your future's secure, the grave has no hold on you anymore. That's what that passage says. Now, here's what we all try to do. We all do this, I do it, you do it. We try to align the world to us. We want the world to shape to us. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but that doesn't work that well all the time. The world is remarkably resistant to being the world I want to be all the time. It says, Mark, I'm not going to do that. You know, you can try to be the king of the universe, but the universe is not going to yield to that. And God especially doesn't yield to that when we say, God, I want you to make things my way. He says, I don't do that. You have to align yourself to the universe. The universe isn't going to align to you. You have it upside down. You want to get reality to conform to you. You have to conform to it. And here's the reality. You were made for me. You don't understand this, but you went your own way, and someone has to pay, so I paid. My son paid the ransom so that you could be freed from death. It has no hold on you. And if you come to me and offer yourself to me, I will receive you and make your life beautiful, and it will be a life that will never end. That's good news. Now, Peter's not the only one who said that. Let's look what Paul said. It was very similar. He said this in uh, 2 Timothy. He says, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we had done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was giving, given us in Christ Jesus, same idea here, before the beginning of time, and Greek here, pro, before, chronon, like chronographer, time, and aeonion, like aeon, eternal. So before time, eternal. It was given to us before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, uh, 
Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul's saying, it's not by anything we've done that gets us right with God. That this merited love became ours in Christ Jesus when? Before the beginning of time. And so it has been revealed to us now, and now death is destroyed as the last enemy. It doesn't win. We are immortal beings. Do you keep hearing me say that this morning? Now, I just want you to see how similar the two passages are. We're going to throw up two, three sets of pairings. That's, let's set up the first one. So Peter says he was chosen before the creation of the world. Paul says this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So it's from time eternal. Next pair. But was revealed in these last times for your sake, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And then the third pairing. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God and Paul, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And here's where it gets scary, people. I didn't mean by that mind-boggling. There are no limits on God's knowledge, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. So he knows your every thought. He knows your past. He knows your present. He knows your future. He knows what you're thinking right now. He know, knew that you would be here today, and he wants to communicate to you right here and now today. God knows all of that. The inspired poet who wrote the Psalms knew about this mystery. He wrote about it in uh, Psalm 139. I'm going to read a good portion of it to you now. David's just kind of reacting to that knowledge of God when he writes this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I, I can't get this. This is mysterious. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when it was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Then he marvels again. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. And then he finishes up by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Earlier, I asked you these questions. What if God's goal was to communicate himself to you so that you could be like him, immortal? What if to achieve this quest, he came into the world and showed us that death didn't have to be the end? But he didn't just say this is possible. Here's something about God you may not know. God, if you read the Old Testament, we're going to start an Old Testament series next weekend. One of the things that is clearest about God in the Old Testament is that God makes promises, and then guess what? He keeps promises. That's who God is. He is a God who makes promises and keeps them. That's why he's called faithful. That is the faithfulness of God. 
And God makes some promises to you today. And that is, listen very carefully here, every one of us. If you stop trusting yourself and your own resources to make yourself palatable to God, admit that you are too messed up to measure up. And if you believe that Jesus as the eternal Son of God came and took your place and died in your place, and if you stop asking God to align himself to your needs and start aligning yourself to his character, God promises that the grave that couldn't hold Jesus down couldn't hold you either, and that grave's going to throw open and you're going to walk out of it one day. Zuli, why don't you come on up here? We heard it at the beginning of the service, and we're going to hear it again. And Zuli's going to sing it, and I'm going to sing it with her, and I'm going to make it much worse than it would have been. <laughs> we had fun. So, Zuli, we uh, sang something kind of at the head of the service here. Let's, let's you sing it, and then you get them singing it too, okay? Oh, if you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. Now you sing it with us. Ready? If you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. Again. If you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. If you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. If you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. One more time. If you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. Sing it with us. If you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. Thank you, Zuli. Good job, Mark. Hey, yeah, you and me. Two questions. Do you belong to him? And secondly, do you have a rightful claim to the hope that Jesus came to bring? Do you hear that? Do you have a rightful claim to the to the hope. Do you have a rightful claim to the hope that Jesus came to bring to you? I quoted an author at the beginning of my message who said, it's nice to have one holiday at least where the meaning's clear. Here's the clean, clear meaning. No matter what's happened in your past, I mean leading up to the moment you came and sat here today, you can be a person of hope. You can throw yourself open to the loving embrace of the risen Savior who says, I want to meet you this morning and receive you. Would you pray with me? Then the team's going to come and close us. It's time to consider those questions, and I want to just let them linger with you for a second. Do I belong to God? Does my life belong to God? Do I have a rightful claim to the hope that Jesus came to bring? Does the grave have any claim on me, or because he walked out of the grave, will I one day walk too? Jesus Christ, Son of God, you and the Father have purposed in eternity that this moment would occur when we'd ask ourselves those questions. And Jesus, you said that we can't come to you unless the Father draws us. And so, draw us all. Draw me. Draw all of us to your side. Draw us all that we might be able to live not as people of uncertainty or people without hope, but people with the hope of the resurrection, believing that because we have tied our wagon to Jesus Christ, that grave door is going to be thrown open for us and that just can't hold these bodies down. Move us from uncertainty to the promise of life forever with you. You are an awesome God to behold, so powerful and mighty, so full of mercy and loving kindness. Hear the cry of those who are coming to you today or coming back to you today. 
and receive them as they become your own. Let the open grave of Jesus Christ be the center of our hope. God, you have brought these people here into this church where we love people and we love to see people who are just like all of us who come here every week finding our way home to you, finding our way into your loving arms, finding our way to live in a broken world and then go out into that broken world and bring your love into it. So enlist more men, women, and children, God, who become your soldiers saying, I want to take the name Jesus Christ and bear that name in this culture without fear. If you walked out of the grave, we're walking too. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.